My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Tammy and Alex of the Hamilton Tenant Solidarity Network. In the last while, mainstream media have oscillated between giddiness and concern about Canada's booming housing market, which is being driven at least in part by skyrocketing prices in cities like Vancouver and Toronto. The concern end of that spectrum has become impossible to avoid even for generally unsympathetic commentators, as the negative impacts of these rising housing costs have taken a toll on more and more people. Living in the central urban areas of Vancouver and Toronto has become completely unaffordable for an increasing number of ordinary people, including many who used to live there but now find themselves displaced. The impacts of these rising housing prices are being felt far beyond Canada's most metropolitan downtowns, however. Take, for instance, Hamilton, Ontario. Hamilton is a city of over half a million people just around the end of Lake Ontario from Toronto. It has historically been known for its steel mills and associated industries and for its vibrant working-class culture, but the erosion of manufacturing in Ontario over the last few decades has hit the city hard. In the last few years, what had been a trickle of arrivals from Toronto seeking housing they could afford became a flood. And, while the arrival of people just looking for a place to live is understandable, what has been much more troubling has been the influx of money. Sources ranging from individual investors and small businesses up to some of the most massive property development and management companies in the country have been treating this as an exciting new opportunity to make a buck. Which, of course, has consequences. Just as in Toronto, neighborhoods have started rapidly changing, rents have been shooting upwards, and people are getting displaced from their homes and communities. The crisis for tenants in Hamilton had started to hit hard by 2015, and it was at that point that some experienced organizers who were directly impacted by these issues started to get together and talk about what could be done in response. These conversations grew and broadened and drew in a larger pool of people, and eventually the Hamilton Tenants Solidarity Network took shape. The network consists of tenants supporting each other as they work together to build collective power within their buildings in order to make concrete improvements in their living conditions. Often, the first step in organizing a building is to bring as many tenants as possible together to talk about the issues that they face. Issues of concern to tenants so far have included rent levels, bedbugs, lack of accessibility ramps, poor conditions of the units, harassment from landlords, and more. Along the way, it's also important to challenge head-on the divisions that often already exist among tenants, along lines of racism and sexism and homophobia, which landlords often deliberately inflame. Then it's a matter of figuring out what demands to make, and how to make them. Sometimes, taking action might mean going to the landlord and tenant board or to other government bodies, and the network has a strong working relationship with the local community legal clinic that facilitates doing so. But a key goal of organizers within the network is to make sure that everyone is aware of other possibilities for taking action as well. 
acting collectively, confrontationally, and publicly in a way that builds solidarity among tenants and that doesn't depend for its results on hoping that an often reluctant and biased bureaucracy will act to support tenants. From collectively and publicly presenting demands to landlords, to phone zaps, to pickets, and on up to rent strikes, it is from these sorts of experiences of tenants taking action for themselves that the network ultimately hopes to build not only committees and associations in individual buildings, but a fighting tenants movement at the level of neighborhoods and of the entire city. Tammy and Alex are both tenants who live in Hamilton. They talk with me about gentrification and the other pressures on tenants in the city, about what the Hamilton Tenants Solidarity Network is doing to fight back, and about the conference and tenants assembly they have planned for the end of April. We spoke by Skype. My name is Alex, and I'm an organizer with the Hamilton Tenants Solidarity Network. I've been a member since we started the network about a year and a half ago. My name is Tammy. I'm also an organizer with the Hamilton Tenants Solidarity Network. And I've been a member since late last summer. The Hamilton Tenants Solidarity Network is an initiative to help try to organize tenants across the city of Hamilton, Ontario. The city here has been facing kind of an onslaught of gentrification for some time now, but it's really picked up over the last couple of years. And so this organization was formed as an effort to try to put the brakes on some of this stuff by actually getting tenants organized in their buildings. And then the idea is that we can, as tenants get organized in their individual buildings, start to link up across the city and form what we hope will end up being a citywide fighting tenants network. The makeup of Hamilton, who lives and works here, is rapidly changing and has been. Historically, Hamilton has sort of been known as a blue-collar, working-class city, a steel town. My parents were born here. My grandparents, who were like immigrants, worked in steel, worked hard jobs, but it was a place where there were some unionized workplaces and working-class families could generally save and own homes and wasn't fancy, but there was an amount of security. With the erosion of the steel industry and leaving of jobs, that began to change. And then beyond that, Hamilton has also historically been a very large social service town. There's a lot of social services in Hamilton that support a very large population of people who depend on them. So one of the other aspects of people currently being displaced from the downtown is the further people get displaced from the downtown, the further they get removed from the services that a lot of people rely on to survive. So there's this two-prong aspect of being displaced and having to find housing, but also being taken away from some very important things that they rely on. In terms of the way that Hamilton's been changing, several years ago, it seems like people who were involved on the municipal level started to subscribe to some of the theories of Richard Florida, who is a really famous urban theorist who teaches in Toronto. This idea of urban transformation through the development of what's known as the creative class. So you basically you're trying to look at urban development and different policies that will attract people who are in marketing or, you know, artists or people who are involved with web development, graphic designers, basically these hip semi middle class professions that he sells as the agents of economic revitalization. This basically was adopted whole hog by the city of Hamilton. And so as a precursor to some of the gentrification that we're experiencing now, areas of the city which were considered to be blighted, they brought in a bunch of artists and gave them cheap studio space and that paved the way, particularly in the north end of the downtown, for sort of like an urban renewal type thing. There was a slogan that was adopted, art is the new steel, which typified this initial wave of gentrification. 
And now, of course, a lot of these people who participated in this initial wave of gentrification are being pushed out by rising rents. They can't afford their studio spaces and stuff like that. And we're seeing now the gentrification is more pushed by large scale plans to integrate Hamilton further into the GTA, the greater Toronto area. And this has been accentuated by a bunch of different large scale transit hubs that are set up to link the two cities so that people can come and buy a house in Hamilton and then commute to their jobs in Toronto. And this has had a pretty significant effect on the housing market here. There's also large scale investments going on, the buying of large high rise buildings, but also in terms of income properties. Before, it'd be very common where you could find a large rental house of like a full house. Now, if you look online, it's very hard to find full houses. They've usually been bought up, broken down. What used to be one house that maybe you could get between $1,000 and $1,200 are broken down to three, even four apartment units, each of which go for that price or more. And it's people just seeing the real estate market in Hamilton as a good way for their retirement to increase their investments and coming in and just buying several properties. Tell me how the Hamilton Tenants Solidarity Network came together. The HDSN emerged fairly organically. I arrived in Hamilton about two years ago. I was living in Toronto before this and couldn't continue living there because of the rising cost of rent. So I was essentially economically displaced from Toronto. And then moving here and seeing the same problem following as somebody who was part of this wave of migration from Toronto to Hamilton, I felt that I had some sort of obligation to fight against some of the negative consequences in terms of the effects on the housing market here in Hamilton. Aside from that, both of us are longtime organizers who do actually see great value in self-organized struggle amongst people who are exploited by capitalism and its various different manifestations. So this really fit with our approach to organizing. And then beyond that, personally, myself, along with a lot of my friends and people that I know, have faced eviction, raising rents, displacement. So it's also something that very much impacts my day-to-day life, worrying about where I'm going to live next, how I'm going to afford to live in the city, and knowing that that's a very large problem going on all over Hamilton right now. There was a number of people, myself included, who caught wind of something that was happening in one of the central downtown neighborhoods of Beasley. There was a complex of a couple of high-rise buildings and some adjoining townhouses that were purchased by a Toronto real estate development company and property management company called Greenwind. They purchased these buildings and started offering people money to leave their units and break their lease. We identified that this was tied to the development of a GO transit station, like a new train station that was in the same neighborhood. They were basically looking at this as like an investment These buildings had like a large Somali community in them, a lot of people who were disabled, who were on city subsidies as well. And so myself and a couple of my friends came into an initial meeting and we sort of saw what was going on. And so we decided that we were going to try to actually do some more sustained organizing in the building. And there were some other people who were doing the same thing from some of the more sympathetic social agencies. And out of this group, a bunch of people coalesced and we started actually having discussions and decided to form a more sort of sustained effort. Also, I should point out that our efforts at those buildings were ultimately unsuccessful because we kind of realized that we got it there a little bit too late. And so we realized we needed to be a bit more proactive. Out of those conversations, the HCSN emerged and we started finding other buildings and identifying earlier on in the process. So looking for when high-rise buildings were being first purchased by uh, some of these large conglomerates from Toronto or or Ottawa, and then getting in there before they could actually start offering people buyouts and stuff like that. Walk listeners through the process of organizing a building. 
it differs for every building, right? So sometimes we'll identify buildings through this process and be able to identify that the tenants in those buildings are going to be facing pressures, displacement pressures. And so we want to try to get out in front of the curve. And in those cases, we might take a more proactive approach and just start knocking on doors, calling like an initial meeting. We do have a very good working relationship with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. So sometimes we'll call an initial meeting and have a lawyer come down with us and do a joint meeting where the lawyer can do a know your rights type training for people uh, to sort of assuage any fears that people might have that, you know, just because a building got bought doesn't mean that they're necessarily have to move or anything like that. And then also we will chime in at those meetings as well and try to get the ball rolling on convincing tenants that they need to actually start organizing amongst themselves to form a building committee or a tenant association or something like that. At this point as well, the organization has built up a little bit of a reputation. So also sometimes tenants might get in touch with the network because there's changes in ownership in the building or they have certain issues in their building, in which case we usually have initial meeting with some of the tenants who have gotten in touch with us, discuss what their issues are, possibilities for addressing them and figuring out collectively in conversation with them some of the next steps that can be taken in their building to potentially address some of that. Usually it's starting off with deciding maybe a first meeting to get all the tenants together in the building beyond the initial small group. So that'll be things like going door to door, flyering, talking to people in the building, trying to convince them to come out. Also, when you're door knocking and talking to them, discussing they might have other issues as well, discussing that and trying to get people to come out, get together and start to build a committee of tenants to try to organize in that building. People will probably come out to the initial meeting because either there's an issue in the building that everyone feels very strongly about, whether it's lack of repairs or bed bugs, or sometimes it's a looming rent increase or something like that. When you first get people out into the room, there's generally a lot of questions. A lot of people want to talk about what's going on in their own units. It's a matter of letting people vent, but then also trying to redirect things towards the need to actually organize around these issues collectively. The best way for doing that is to get people on board for what they actually want to tackle first. And I mean, also making sure that people know that they don't have to go anywhere, making sure that people are confident, at least in a baseline understanding of what their rights are under the Residential Tenancies Act. Because the way that a lot of this works, there's a whole variety of tactics that landlords will use to try to intimidate or trick tenants into leaving their units before they're properly evicted by the landlord and tenant board. And then from there, trying as soon as possible to shift into more of an attack mode where you figure out what is one of the main issues affecting tenants in the building and then organizing and coming up with some ideas, potentially some sort of outside the box type ideas as to how you can actually get those problems addressed. Often tenants might come to these meetings and rightfully so be a little nervous or scared about losing their housing. And in addition to dispelling whatever myths and untruths maybe they were told by their landlords or property managers, really encouraging the idea that, yes, that's reasonable to be concerned about these things, but that you are a lot stronger when you're working together with your fellow tenants. And as a collective force, there's actually a lot you can potentially do and power you can exert, which is a lot harder if you're just an isolated tenant on your own and really trying to encourage that sense of collective possibility. Another thing that is involved there is is actually identifying what types of tensions and divisions already exist within the tenants in a building. So this is always a good opportunity as well to address issues of racism or sexism or homophobia that you might be able to identify coming from particular segments of the building or particular individuals. 
in trying to work through those issues so that people do understand that these types of divisions only play into the landlord's hands so that it's incumbent on people to actually address the barriers to collective action in the building and be proactive in terms of addressing those. So one of the things as well that often comes up is that people are surprised to learn that immigrants or, or refugees who are living in the building generally face harassment from the landlord that some of the white tenants might not have experienced. So basically, it's getting them to put aside any of their misconceptions or stereotypes or backwards beliefs that might be actually an obstacle to organizing down the road. And how do you do that? How do you go about confronting those divisions? There's no universal approach. Obviously, it depends on the specificities of the situation. But sometimes it's just as simple as breaking things down, of acknowledging someone's Concerns or feelings like listening and going from there and sort of breaking down some of the misconceptions that they might have had, sometimes even told by landlords or property managements who are encouraging these divisions and trying to have a conversation that isn't condemning someone or necessarily judging them, acknowledging that there's lots of reasons that people come to have these beliefs, but sort of trying to talk things down and break it down step by step and listen to people along the way. And often there's a lot of space to move forward from there. A lot of these beliefs are not really all that ingrained. It's repeatedly an issue when we go into buildings. But the thing is, if you have a lot of people in the same room and the majority of them are actually on board with the message, if somebody actually tries to you know, be resistant and is actually saying something that's racist, I mean, they very quickly out themselves as being ignorant and other tenants will actually start to chime in at that point. It is sort of self-reinforcing. When they actually say these things out loud and they're met with mockery from their fellow tenants, I mean, it very quickly lets them realize that they're just being an idiot. I think, too, there's just a simple component to it where it's a lot easier to hold on to really racist ideas about people when you don't really talk to them or don't have any relationships with them. But when you're in a room sitting with them and you're seeing these people having similar struggles as you, I often notice that tenants start to work through those. So if it's, you know, someone saying something like, oh, immigrants come here and, you know, they have it so easy and they have it better than us something like that, and then are sitting in a room with a fellow tenant who's talking about all the struggles that they're having with bed bugs and all the problems that they're having trying to take care of their children in this context. And I think it's a lot harder to hold on to those beliefs when you just see someone who's having the exact same problem with each other. So once you've brought tenants together, you've had conversations, you've identified the key issues in a given building, what kinds of actions do you take? People do have an ingrained tendency to want to go towards either, you know, contacting your MPP or your city councillor or going through the landlord and tenant board. And so, I mean, we have to engage with these sort of suggestions with people and see if this is really actually the most effective course of action. In some cases, going to the landlord and tenant board is an effective action if you can get like a joint reduction in rent or something like that. And sometimes you have to if you're facing like an above guideline rent increase or if tenants are facing eviction or something like that. That said, what we generally try to encourage is things that incrementally build up solidarity amongst tenants in the building and a sense of collective struggle, while also actually having a level of escalation built into them. It's worth stressing that this is different really in every building and, and depends entirely on the context. But one of the things that we've done in the past is, you know, first of all, getting people together to formulate what their demands are and using that again to address if people generally are feeling like the landlords are harassing them, maybe also actually identifying in that that, you know, the Cambodian tenants in the building are feeling particularly harassed or the Somali tenants. And so this needs to be pointed out. 
and then maybe going around and trying to get as many people as possible to sign on to this list of demands and then either sending that to the landlord or potentially going down and doing a collective delivery of the demands to the landlord and trying to do that in like a public fun way, maybe having a bit of a rally. Then there's other tactics that have been developed by solidarity networks. They've sprung up in a bunch of cities across North America. There's a whole toolbox of tactics in there, like phones, apps and stuff like that. And then we always do actually try to at least plant the seed with tenants that there is always the opportunity of, of escalating up to like a rent strike, which is a pretty extreme tactic, but where we eventually want to get people to, you know, we explain to them that it takes a level of cohesion that requires people actually going through a campaign together. It's just a matter of trying to figure out and plan it in advance a little bit so that there's room for some escalation in a way that people are comfortable with. And that during the process of the campaign, it actually helps solidify ties between neighbors. Part of which is always reiterating that while the standard methods that people first think about for addressing problems, such as going to landlord tenant board or contacting a local politician, while those are fine and might be useful, always encouraging the idea that there's a lot of other things that people can do beyond what first often comes to mind. And there's a lot of potential there and trying to open people's minds to consider alternatives as well. When you bring up the prospect of going to the landlord's home, or if you identify where maybe one of the executives in the corporation that owns their building lives, and you float that idea by tenants, it never fails to put a smile on my face to see the tenant's eyes light up with an understanding that you could really actually play outside the box. And then you can very quickly follow that up with like, they mess with you in your homes. Why can't everyone go together and pay them a visit where they live? I think often landlords, property management, et cetera, are sort of presented as this faceless, far off figure that's just kind of like alienated and removed. But when you break it down that you know, these people that have power over your lives and are putting you through a lot are also physical people who exist somewhere and have offices and have home addresses. And they are people that even if you don't come in contact with them every day in your daily life, doesn't mean that you have to be completely removed from them. It doesn't mean that you can't confront them and go to where they are just like the way they come to you. So you mentioned earlier that in addition to organizing tenants in individual buildings, you also want to be building something that brings tenants from across the city together. Talk about that. At present, that's more an ongoing ideal that we're slowly building towards and not a current linked up network doesn't exist in a very real material sense between buildings yet. But I think part of it as tenants are coming together with each other and are struggling and winning even small demands, people are seeing the capacity to take action, potentially influence things in the city. So on one hand, you have people becoming more aware of that. And then I think it becomes easier to make the pitch of how you could take that further if you're linking up with tenants. Okay, you've seen what you can do when you come together with your neighbor. You've seen what you can do when you come together with tenants in your building. Imagine what you can do then if you come together with another building and another building. Things in Hamilton in terms of rent isn't going to get any better. Generally, conditions are just getting worse. So I think just planting those seeds and building those relationships and having people have those experiences of struggle sets a foundation to try to put into motion people coming together on that broader scale. One of the other things that we did last year and which we're doing again this year is we had a big one day conference. So people might be familiar with going to like an anarchist book fair or something like that. So it was sort of structured along the same way. It was called Building Together. 
and it was very much geared towards renters. So the byline was a uh, conference by renters for renters. And it was just chock full of like workshops and Skillshare's and training sessions that were aimed to be relevant and useful for people seeking to organize in their buildings. And so we're going to be doing that again this year. We're going to be doing it on Saturday, April 29th. And it's going to be all day at the Perkins Center, which is sort of a central downtown location. We're going to be doing extensive outreach across the city in order to try to get as many people out to that as possible. This year, what we're doing is one component of it is we're going to be trying to have a tenant assembly of sorts. We're conceptualizing it as just sort of a pretty free-flowing exchange, possibly some sort of breakout groups and possibly trying to come to some sort of collective decision. But much more of just sort of a sharing, getting people used to talking about what their different experiences are in different parts of the city. And then one of the things that we're hoping to do from that is to actually start looking at having these tenant assemblies on the neighborhood level. So we've identified a few areas of the city that are high-density, multi-residential buildings, and we're hoping to shift gears maybe after the conference towards building up some level of density in one of these neighborhoods so that we could actually just start having these types of open-air conversations and trying to build organically some of the links between people in different buildings. So beyond the conference, what else is coming up for the Hamilton Tenants Solidarity Network? I mean, right now we're mainly just focused on the conference. It's going to be a lot of work. So that's taking up a lot of our time. We're basically at a point right now where I think we're going to take a little bit of a step back after that and kind of reassess where we're at start to come up with, like I mentioned, maybe some more neighborhood-specific type strategies. We still need to have all these conversations, but I think the idea is to sort of really try to reassess things and then kind of hit the ground running with a sustained organizing campaign after the conference. One of the things also that we're keeping an eye on is the LRT, the light rail transit that's planned for the city. There's a lot of discussion within the city. It's kind of being framed as people who are pro-transit and environmentalists versus people from the suburbs who are pro-car. But I mean, what's getting lost in this is really that this is a huge project that's going to open up broad swaths of the city to increased investment or redevelopment. So one of the things that's going to be a challenge is actually coming up with, like, how are we going to face the very real material consequences of a project like that? We're not focusing on the talking points that are actually floating back and forth between the councillors on the mountain, for instance, versus the liberal urbanist crowd. We're looking at who's actually at threat of being displaced from their neighbourhoods in like a year or two when the construction actually starts and the money starts flooding into some of these areas. Hopefully with the conference and having ideally a lot of people come out for that and with the tenants assembly, hopefully there'll be more ideas that come out of that, more energy for next phases of struggle. And with the new phases of development, hopefully there'll be opportunities there to start struggling before buildings already laid down, before things are already sold, when it's easier to potentially influence things. You have been listening to my interview with Tammy and Alex of the Hamilton Tenants Solidarity Network. To learn more about their work, go to hamiltontenantssolidarity.ca. That's hamiltontenantssolidarity.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.